This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Representations of landscape, highlighting their extraordinary detailed knowledge of country. The works of Alec Baker and Peter Mancuri now showing at Oldcaston Gallery, 11 Brunswick Street, Fitzroy, until November the 4th. Craft Victoria has moved into its new home at 171 Collins Street. The new space includes a number of galleries, a retail store, offices and storage space. There is also a purpose-built members showcase gallery that will feature the work of six members each month. Multiple gallery spaces also give Craft Victoria the flexibility to exhibit more artists and there is an exciting exhibition program in development. Craft Victoria, open from Monday to Saturday at 171 Collins Street, just off Flinders Lane. For more information on these events and other local and community events, simply jump onto rrr.org.au. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? dramatic or like sort of understated or what this is a land that prays for a hero the humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a run for survival you are listening to greening the apocalypse on triple r 102.7 fm Yes, indeedy, and welcome to this week's edition of Greening the Apocalypse, three triple R's weekly, slightly optimistic, somewhat nihilistic, but goes well with Scotch, uh, hourly chat show. Uh, Bush is my name. Thank you very much, Vaughan Quinn, for the last three hours of Double Bounce, and uh, I'm sure you'll be back next week, um, unless something bizarre happens. I kind of forget what I'm doing. I've barely been here the last month. Uh, Adam Grubb, yeah? Yeah, I've missed you, mate. I've missed you too, man. Well, apparently you've just forgotten me. <laughs> Never. Never. I've been munching a lot of sticky weed. Now, I've been, I read your book. I've read it several times over, the, the weed forage. Gallium, gallium aparine is sticky weed or cleavers. What, how do you eat it? I chop it up and I put it in a smoothie each morning because oh, I'm good, on this it has new midlife crisis. Of, um, of Velcro, if you don't. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Can you overdo it? Before I tell you how much I've been having each day, can you overdo it? Not that I'm aware of. Sweet. And um, Pliny the Elder said of cleavers that it is good to cause lankness and keep from fatness. I'll, I quote that to everyone who thinks I'm a freak. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and he was onto something because they figured out it acts as a lymphatic stimulant. Yep. And that's good for your... Um, Get rid of, uh, I can never remember what's what, cellulose or cellulite. It brings on the lankness. It brings on the lankness. Indeedy. Yeah. And uh, hello, Jed McCarthy, pusher of the buttons, controller of the panel. Hello. How hey, are you guys? Good. You've been into state. I have. Um, and um, I'm just trying to remember which buttons I've got to push mm. in what order. So I think hopefully we'll be. Trump's right. got a bit confused over yeah. which button he might push. <laughs> let's hope too. not. Hey, yeah. I need some of that weed. You guys will have to tell me all about it. Sticky weed. No, let's just emphasize sticky weed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. yeah sticky weed. Yeah. That other stuff. We'll talk about that off air. <laughs> Indeedy. Hey, Adam, we've got a cracking show today. We've got our, our first guest will be up in just a moment. We've also got a second guest lined up. I know, unprecedented. A bit later on, we've got a ten, chat with Tammy Jonas. Uh, she's a small-scale farmer in central Victoria and uh, she's up against uh, some of the regulators and their general unfairness. So we have a chat to her on the phone around 7.40, but who are we speaking to first, Adam? Well, in the studio, sitting across from us is the uh, very dapper <laughs> Daryl Taylor. Daryl, well, of note tonight, he is a survivor of the um, Black Saturday bushfires in King Lake and uh, when that hit, Daryl already had a, about a decade of experience working in community development and uh, organisational development type roles and since that day I guess has been very much involved in the recovery efforts at the community and grassroots and some official levels and so he's seen the experience of that through the eyes of somebody already trained in the field. His work has been acknowledged with 13 state and national awards and best practice commendations and his experience in the aftermath of the fires deeply informed his work now and has led him to reflect on the creative chaos of bottom-up community-led resources compared to what he saw as poorly fitting and disempowering government responses. And that's mostly what we're going to talk about tonight and what he covers in his 2005 uh, co-authored report. It's about 250 pages long and a great read. Uh, Place-based and community-led specific disaster preparedness and generalisable community resilience. 
Uh, so, it's been 10 years, or oh, almost, eight, I suppose. Um, uh, do, you want to, do you want to tell us what happened to you uh, on the day of the Black Saturday, Daryl? Yeah, I never think about it as a day. It was yeah. um, a couple of weeks leading up that was pretty unprecedented. Mm. More people in Victoria died during the heat wave before Black Saturday than in the bushfires. So it was kind of a series of crises rather than one event that just yeah. happened over about an hour, really. Yeah. So, yeah, we, we were at home preparing i mean i wasn't even preparing my house to tell you the truth i was putting the finishing touches on a report so i was swapping photos around and just rejigging the contents page and my partner at the time was pretty she was getting a bit agitated like why was i doing this when there was other stuff to be done so about midday we got serious and plugged up all the gutters and put sand along the doorways and just sealed everything and um and as the day wore on, you know, we got a little fire guard, which really had been meeting for 25 years, and mm. we meet three or four times a year, but most of the time we just get really drunk together. Yeah. So, you know, it's one of those things that as an institution, it kind of had lost effectiveness. I mean, we still had social connections, we knew each other really well, but we didn't do any drills yeah. or any preparedness work. So, Is that just the long, that long infrequency breeds a <laughs> bit of... Yeah? Because it's not, you know... I live in a bushfire-prone area and people yes. really... It informs their thinking a hell of a lot, but you kind of remind them, well, you know, it's 20 years since anything mm. around here had a sniffer fire. Yeah, we've had three major bushfires in a century in King Lake. We're one of the most bushfire-prone places mm. on the planet in history. Yeah. Um, but you still get complacency. Yep. And I think part of the reason you get complacency also is you have these standard template household plans that you get handed out to fill in like tick the box but no one's house is the same no one's community is the same mm. no one's topography and weather conditions and prevailing winds and all of those kind of factors which make each place unique mm. uh, built into those standard template plans so again they're useless and preparing the same way each year also yeah. is you know it's not really what's required i think you know, we have, I call it too much screen time, but it's that driving out of bushfire areas to work uh, when people are looking through their windscreen. windscreen. So, <laughs> so they've got that time when they're travelling at 80 k's, yeah. when they're not really immersed in the forest. So they're not really sensing the changes in the seasons yeah. and the changes that play out over years. Like we were at the end of a sort of a decade-long El Nino drought yeah. and really... You know, we should be ramping up all of our preparedness at that time if we had a deeper sense of the greater patterns. Mm. But that's not supported, that kind of literacy, and it's not supported by having these sleeper suburbs mm. yeah. under the trees. Yeah, yeah. And this this is something that affected, well, y you as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so, um, I don't know, do you want to return <laughs> return back to, back to what happened? Um, yeah, so we... We did what a lot of couples do. We yeah. fought with one another. So, um, you know, we had a bit of a plan happening, but the plan was contingent on information from the CFA and the CFA had decided not to release information. So the first thing we knew there was a fire was when there was a fire. Yeah. So, you know, we were trying to make decisions about our plan without the requisite information. So yeah. that caused tension and Lucy, my partner at the time, was keen to get the hell out of there. So we'd had a fire in 2006 and with enough notice, Lucy took our daughter Maggie down to Venus Bay with a bottle of gin. That was the plan. Mm -hmm. um, and not with also with Vera who drank the gin with yeah, 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 Lucy, yeah. not my daughter. Yeah, Maggie. Yeah. Um, and so without that requisite information that you usually get from the state government about where the fires are mm. we were kind of stuck and it ended up that we were fighting so lucy wanted to leave king lake's a national forest national park town you can't get out of king lake without driving through forest so i wasn't mm. all that happy with that idea of leaving late in the afternoon with the not knowing um, and there was you know it was horrible conditions and there was smoke everywhere so we plugged up everything lucy rang her mate Anna, our friend Anna, and just to see what they were doing. We'd been at a friend's place the night before. They'd just finished building a two-storey house. 
they'd just installed their Smeg fridge, which had come from Italy. <laughs> and so we were drinking everything in the fridge. So it was kind of four, it was really hot. So, you know, it was four o'clock in the morning before we rode Bush Cassidy and the Sundance Kid kind of Lucy on the handlebars home wobbling all over the road and we left the cars there so late in the afternoon we went to pick up the cars and I brought my car to the service station to fill up just in case we needed to use the car and all of a sudden it went all black I was about third in the queue I never got to the front of the queue the petrol station went down so we were kind of you know, we Jesus. knew we were stuck then. Lucy was heading over to Anna and Will's place, so I went over to Anna and Will's place. I left my car and went with them. Um, and really we got out of the car at the front of their place. Their place really, there was an open paddock and then there was the forest on the south side. So the pyrophilic forest and the big slope, you know, we basically got the full brunt of mm. the firestorm at Will and Anna's place. Little mud brick house. I'd helped install the water tanks, helped roll them along the neighbour's property and then lift them over the fence. So they obviously weren't concrete, they were plastic. Uh And they evaporated. So I watched the tanks and all the water evaporate. So we had to protectively shelter. The the, the plastic melted. Yeah, 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 there was only three inches at the bottom. So these, you know, huge tanks. What What are you thinking? At that, at that stage, at that stage what, what, what was going through? <laughs> well, I was head? thinking that I'm inappropriately attired. I mean, someone else's house. This is like there's nothing in the fire plan that predicts this, and so mm. this is what happens to a lot of people. The fire plan ends up being redundant very like most strategic plans. They end up being redundant fairly quickly. Mm. So then it's all about adaptive management, and you know just as, you know, just constantly spotting fires as they're breaching the envelope of the home. And Mm. they breached the west side of the home first. Will's a lawyer and a psychologist, so the house is not necessarily as practically prepared as it could otherwise be. So the... Um, the generator's outside the bathroom door, the fires come in the bathroom, we can't access the generator. The little bit of water that's in the bath... Um, doesn't take long before that's used up. It's only a little bit of water in the bottom of the mm. bath. So we're basically chucking face washes at fires <laughs> for the next 45 minutes. And and basically every my job and Anna's job, Anna was terrific to work with and it was all... And Lucy kind of took the role of looking after the kids. So, you know, we built cubbies out of couch, upturned couches with, you know, wet Indian rugs on top and the kids mm-hmm. were all hiding under those. Um, and, you know, all around us there was fire. I remember looking out the window at one stage and got a little bit dreamy, kind of... I was imagining chemistry classes and Rutherford's atom and just all these things swirling around. It's not and, the time for that, Daryl. <laughs> and then I kind of... Yeah, yeah. and so back, up, back at it again, closed the curtains. But it was really interesting watching the embers because it was as if they were trying to access uh, the house, like trying to find the yeah. little point where they could get more oxygen and you know, make a fire again. Um, so that was, it was fascinating and it was, it was extraordinary period. Like um, I heard you say the word chick sent me higher or something like that on one of your previous... I pretend to say it correctly, <laughs> I don't really know. But, you know, really on adrenaline, you know, you're in flow. And so, mm. you know, in many ways that 45 minutes where we protectively sheltered and actively mm. put out fires, spot fires that were breaching the envelope of the home was, you know, like a peak experience in Mm. many ways. Mm. And, um, you know, I had my father's voice in my head. I'll never forget this because Lucy's car, an old metal Toyota, not a plastic car, Mm. survived the fire underneath some green deciduous trees. So Mm. we, I got in the car and drove and Will and Anna's property is about six foot above the road. And so with all the adrenaline on board, I didn't really know. I just got in and put my foot on the accelerator and, you know, having survived the fire, we nearly reversed off a cliff onto the (laughs) road. So my father always had this saying, less haste, more pace. And that just kept, it was really ringing in my ears. So I kind of managed to just 
stopped right on the edge and well, then drove is, slowly out. What does the landscape look at this point? The fire front's gone through, yeah. but it's still burning. Oh, everything was burning. The yeah. whole town was on fire. So we drove yeah. past the service station. There were gas bottles exploding and heading off 100 feet in the air. All, all of the – not all the shops were on fire because there were a lot of people in the main street because no one was expecting a fire to descend on us at that time. So yeah. people actually saved major infrastructure in the main street just because they were there to defend it. Um, you know, we had mates at the pub who were on the roof of the pub yep. swatting embers with brooms and doing all sorts of crazy heroic things in, in a pair of stubbies, you know, incongruous, but they did it. And mm-hmm. so, look, it was everyone congregated on a spare block sharps plat- paddock, which is near the old CFA. And, you know, it was really too smoky to get out of your car. It was mm-hmm. really hard to breathe. We were just really making sure everyone was safe. There was, you know, lots of people checking on people, so there was a lot of goodwill. I went over to the CFA and I've got a background in nursing and have worked in emergency departments, so I kind of helped a young policeman set up a triage system and so we had people coming through with burns straight away. One of my really good friends had third-degree burns. And then within maybe 30 minutes, we had bereaved people coming in. So where we were, the house next door, five people were killed and so on and so forth in a patchworks kind of way. There was 119 people killed in our area that night. Um, So, yeah, that was a really good role to play. kept me busy for about an hour, hour and a half, and then some more nurses came in and I wasn't needed anymore. Mm. So um, I let that go and went through the smoke you know, I kind of went and checked on Lucy and Maggie and just said, I'll be back soon. And At this point, you don't know what's happened to your house. No, no idea. So um, I went back to our house and I could see clearly what had happened. There was an ember that had sat um, above our shower recess just on a window ledge and it had burned its way up through wood into the pine that was required at the time between... Um, and it's Oregon, so really light wood oh, yeah. that was required between mud bricks and the roof. Mm. So that's not required anymore, but that was our weak spot in the yeah. house because yeah. that burnt. And so by the time I got to the house, um, the bathroom laundry had been really badly burnt and the fire was in our bedroom. Um, so that was all on the south side of the house. We've kind of got a mud, a mud brick house with a east-west wall, solar passive uh, sort of like a heat bank wall, so that actually kept the fire on the south side yeah, for, right. for the most yeah. part. But it was up in the in the ceiling, so I had to work really hard to put the fire out. I was really lucky to still have my pump and my um, and water in the tank, mm. and the nozzle had burnt off the hose, so it was kind of a bit like a Catherine wheel. So it was really hard to focus it on the seat of the fire. But mm. having said that, you just you know I'd been adapting all day, so it was just yeah, continuously yeah. adapt and. Mm. Yeah, probably after about 10 hours, I could see that the fire was largely out and I went back and slept in my friend's clean laundry in her house and um, it wasn't clean when I woke up because I'd been covered in black stuff. And then I went back and the house was on fire again. So there was just mattresses and things where, you know, the fire had sat. So it took me another 10 hours to finally get the house fire out. Um, And, yeah, it was... It was – I didn't think anything of it at the time, but, yeah, we had a mutual friend, um, David, come over and he just said not many people put house fires out and I didn't know that at the time, but uh, it was nice to hear it from David, I suppose. But, yeah, it was – the next morning was really interesting, just getting up and driving around town and just seeing the devastation. So um, our – area every house was destroyed bar one a hardy plank house where a chemistry Uh, teacher was marking his chemistry you know preparing chemistry classes um and you know he had basically a watering can and you know he put the fire out in his balcony with the watering can and went back inside like he wasn't even he was hardly aware that it was there i was so glad he was there because he gave me some extra petrol extra fuel to put in the pump the generator so that i could keep putting my fire Keep out going. but yeah other than his place and he was just lucky really no prepar- no preparation just the mm. right kind of materials yeah and that was interesting driving around king lake the next morning um the houses that survived were the houses that were in many ways pioneer houses in the area so they were um cement sheet houses that had been built in the 1940s and they weren't even houses they were just tiny little shacks and they were Mm. kind of just places where people would go to be in the forest from the city and 
they survived at the highest rate. So mm. mud brick, weatherboard and um, brick veneer survived at the lowest rate. Most of the houses that have been rebuilt, brick veneer with metal frames. And what happened, I watched from my roof, I watched the brick veneer houses in our street, the the buckled frame pushed the bricks out oh. and created an opening for members to get in. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, let's let's talk about what happened in the in the weeks and months following. How did the community res- respond in in the aftermath of this stuff? And for a while, it, when I talked to you before, you said I think you used the phrase there was a lockdown. So. You, what does that mean? Yeah, for eight weeks we had forensics through, so they were going through all the soil looking for human remains. Yeah. So their role was to um, identify... You would have seen the death count continuously increase yeah, over, over several days, yeah, yeah. days and weeks. So their role was to identify human remains and they left no stone unturned. They went from property to property. And during that period, we had police at every entry point to the mountain. So we were completely locked down. And for a lot of people, that's their dream of King Lake, you know, is this place that gets bypassed by the two major roads that end up culminating in Yay. So we're kind of like the bar on a capital A from the city and Mm. the the cars just go vroom past us to Mm. the west and the same to the east. And, Mm. you know, it's often described as a hidden island on top of a mountain and so locking it down was in many ways provided the opportunity for the agency of practical people so i would say that every fundamental human and social need was met by self-organizing systems of largely amateur people so um, not professionals with any necessarily previous experience in the domain that they were working in Mm. uh and my opinion is that they, or my observation was that humility was really important because they had to learn their way through. They didn't come with any precepts or concepts about how to do this. Mm. They genuinely had to immerse themselves and continuously adapt. And so it really was a self-organising system. It wasn't something that was imposed mm. or strategic. And it was a delight to watch yeah. and and participate in. And look, they did an absolutely phenomenal job. They just kept rising to the occasion and yeah. rising to the occasion. So, um, what, that, what kind of characters were the ones that stood out? Yeah, look, I think in many ways for me, the people who were the traditional leaders, and it's like this in so many communities, mm. it's not particular to King Lake, you know, the people that step up onto a soapbox and proclaim leadership are often high profile but sometimes unfortunately low trust individuals Mm. whereas i think the people that are often underestimated are the low profile high trust individuals so they've got a lot of network worth um, but they tend to fly under the radar so it was a mixture but yeah a lot of those people did extraordinary work in the aftermath of the fires because trust was so critical Mm. Um, Um, And, yeah, people, you know, we didn't necessarily want everyone to be self-aggrandising or whatever in the aftermath of the disaster. It was important to have solidarity and to Mm. be working really close together and looking after each other's best interests. So, look, a lot of people who stood up and led groups were, to some extent, unprecedented. You know, they came, like great communities they've got enormous redundancy within them you know they're not shaped like a pyramid they're not like any of the structures that were coming into the community whether they were government or corporate or ngos or community service organizations they're all organized with a ceo and a clear structure where communities don't have that Mm -hmm. and so it provides that opportunity depending on what the prevailing issue is people can just step up and step into space and we saw lots of people who with you know without any previous experience step up and step into space and i suppose for a few of our long-term acknowledged community leaders and people who are third generation farmers and whatever Mm. you know members of the local labor party in particular were you know they were thinking that with a Labor Prime Minister and a Labor Premier that, you know, these four families would be the go-to people. But really they became um, in many ways like a... a You know, the kind of narrow bit in the funnel. They were the bit that stopped communication. And so, you know, Mm -hmm. part of what we had to do was unravel the 
pre-existing leadership structure yeah. so that it could be democratised and more people could participate. Yeah. So that in itself was really interesting and you sort of see how party politics play out in that at the local level. Just, um, just to paint a picture, what kind of activities are the organisers doing? Oh, look, my, one of my favourites was just looking after animals. So all the fences were down and it's a rural area. So... Catching animals in the first instance yeah. and then providing them with... Difficult at the best of times. At the best of times. Yeah. And food, providing them with food and tending their wounds. And so obviously cattle and sheep and dogs and cats and domestic animals. But, you know, a turtle was one of the ones that they had yeah. to look after and they weren't quite <laughs> sure what to feed it. And they weren't quite sure because everything was burnt. There was no feed anywhere, yeah. how to get resources. And so they were incredibly resourceful. Like uh, one woman just got onto the CB radio and truck drivers of Australia. And so people on their return journeys would bring hay. And yeah. so, wow. and they had like this huge stash of hay within a week. And, you know, it was, there was another place where they set up like a, a welfare site and they had people bringing shipping containers in with helicopters. And, you know, I don't know how they organized it, but one guy had. But it wasn't through the government. No, not at all. It was all you know, bypassing systems. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, th- these things were self-organised. Uh, you know, another thing was setting up community dining because no one had a kitchen, no one yeah. had a fridge. So people still needed to eat. So we, was, we were feeding. There was a restaurant in the main street that had been saved during the fire um, and no one was around. So we we occupied it yeah. um, and then we got formal approval to do so and we were serving 300 meals like it yeah. was extraordinary oh, yeah. and everyone was involved in cooking being the maitre d' <laughs> the bands would come out you know people got musical instruments and they'd play oh, yeah. music and it was a yeah, great no stairway to heaven like you'd still maintain it burning ring of fire I'm just curious, when you talk about these, I mean, I, I guess with the lockdown there were still supplies able to get through, like people could brush their teeth, comb their hair, those day-to-day pleasantries. But I just wonder, um, and, and it sounds quite a positive response, but there must have been conflict at times. And if it's, if it's a constantly sort of shifting and adjusting leadership that you're watching, how does any conflict resolution that might spring up get dealt with? Look, I think that there's a sweet spot in the aftermath of disasters and certainly Rebecca Solnitz identified this in her book A Paradise Built in Hell. So she tracked 100 years of disaster responses by communities in the United States and we genuinely experienced that sweet spot as did the other fire impacted communities. I had a role for a while as the Combined Community Recovery Committees. I was the convener of that group. Yeah, 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 the CCCCCCC. And, yeah, so I got to kind of talk with people across the whole area and then we'd take a delegation to meet with the Premier or whomever. And it was... These were common experiences in the first, particularly, I would say, up to 16 weeks, so four months. Right. So we really worked well together. So there was this genuine turning to one another. Yep. And, you know, I found it in the day after where I got hugs from people I'd only ever seen in the line at the supermarket or at the post office. And, you know, they were just so happy to see me and I was happy to be hugged. You know, it was amazing. And so that played out you know, over the subsequent weeks and months. And we genuinely, there was great solidarity because we had this shared experience and there was extraordinary creativity as we bootstrapped together systems to meet all of our fundamental needs. Mm. So that was an extraordinary period. And I think then the professionals came in, the emergency service professionals and then the community service professionals and also government representatives. And, yeah, Eventually, we noted that we were being wedged politics and all these things were playing out. And as we lost power and, you know, it was to be called a community-led recovery, like from day one we said do not say we will rebuild because Mm. we had no planning in our area. It had all been developed ad hoc. So Mm. people were incredibly vulnerable in some of the places where they'd built, you know, best view ever, but the fire right (sighs) below them, yeah. And so we thought it was a really good idea, a really good opportunity to rethink and redesign, to do what in disaster recovery or rebuilding is called betterment. Mm. Um, And we worked with... um, 
Green Cross Australia um, to look at, you know, all sorts of extraordinary um, eco-resilient housing that could be built and also eco-resilient or disaster-resilient settlement design. So none of that played out. So I think what did play out was we did start to turn on one another and we saw these communities turning on each other and within communities people turning on one another and it's classic community development stuff from Paulo Freire from South America, you know, the the horizontal violence of the mutually oppressed. When you can't work out how to band together to overcome a force that's greater than you, then you start to kind of pick on each other. Mm. And I think, you know, playing that out to its logical conclusion, Jermaine Greer has a little book of rage and she talks about the internal violence of the chronically repressed. So when you can't find the forum to have agency or to have your say, then it kind of eats away at you internally and can turn into cancer or you know some kind of pathology and premature death and we also saw that play out as well over the subsequent years so 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 you're saying the repressive force that caused the horizontal conflict was well a a combination of the events themselves i assume but also having to deal with a fairly blunt uh official response that didn't acknowledge that uh community bottom-up um, creativity that had happened in its absence. Yeah, I think, you know, we've always been fortunate and misfortunate living in Murrindindi because it's probably approximately at least 78 out of 78 local government authorities in terms of capacity. And, you know, John Brumby hadn't been elected Premier, so he was very keen to be elected Premier. So the opportunity that the bushfire mm. posed for him for photographs of ministers opening new mm. facilities, you know, helping you know, disaster survivors or victims uh, was huge for him. And so you could see that that was, you know, we knew from talking to disaster communities internationally that it was going to be a seven to ten year rebuilding process. Mm. I'm not a great fan of the word recovery. I kind of think it's about covering it over again. And it's also about going back to a time before when you've had a transformative event and you can't go back to where you were before when you've had a transformative event. You've been transformed. So one of the difficulties was that, you know, the state government took out local government's key role in the aftermath of disasters. So they had the authority to do so, but they'd never done it before in in Victoria's history. So because Murrindindi was so overwhelmed and had such small capacity, they were the most impacted local government authority by the bushfire. Something like 60% of property in in Murrindindi was uh, bushfire impacted. The police commissioner, Christine Nixon, who was acting on behalf of Brumby through the newly formed bushfire... uh, What was it called? Royal Commission. No, no, no. no, The um, recovery and... Yeah, Recovery and Reconstruction Authority, Vibra. Um, So John Brumby created like a little department that was far enough away from him that if something went wrong, they would be blamed. If everything (laughs) went good, he could still take the credit. So it's just kind of like a strategy. But essentially, you know, she came out, she met with Murrindindi, she heard what the local people thought of Murrindindi because it had been constituted to fail. Only 9,000 ratepayers, massive area, you know, huge swathe of Victoria in Murrindindi. Um, And, you know, she basically provided advice that we need to get local governments out of the way. But there were really capable local Mm. governments like Yarra Rangers, Nilambic and Whittlesey in particular who had been badly impacted by the fires and who were doing really good things. And so that one-size-fits-all strategy left us all worse off in many ways. Um, So um, it meant that we were all uh, vulnerable to the vagaries of state government decision-making and there was no autonomy at the local government level and there was certainly no autonomy. We... We ran an election, a couple of friends of mine got the Electoral Commission on board and so we had an election to elect Community Recovery Committee members. That was the first time that had ever been done in the aftermath of a disaster Mm. and then other communities followed suit and so we tried to democratise the process but communities are not constituted in law so Mm. communities unlike corporations or individuals, can't actually act. So, you know, we were given a community-led recovery rhetoric and a we-will-rebuild rhetoric, but we weren't given the capacity or the agency to make decisions. And that was, you know, profoundly disempowering for people yeah. on the ground. They were occupying positions, but they had no authority. There was no authorising environment. Yeah. Daryl, 
Do you want to hang around and we can record a bit extra for the podcast? Because I feel like um, there's a lot more to say for this. If you have to rush, rush off, that's okay. I'm happy to continue drinking this stuff, Adam. It's delicious. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, it's been great talking to you so far. And mm. uh, for listeners of the live airways right now, you should know that Green in the Apocalypse has a podcast which you can find on our Triple R page and on our Facebook page. Mm-hmm. And uh, we will continue this conversation with Daryl and put that up in an extended interview. Hey, podcast listeners, you're now at the extra bonus bit of the show. While Bushy and Jed were interviewing Tammy Jonas, Daryl and myself, we snuck into the next door studio and continued our conversation. And he begins by talking about how the community felt about the government aid when it did finally come. Yeah, look, I think we were really glad to see people coming in to help. Um, But I think then we were really disappointed that they didn't do some kind of rapid rural appraisal or situation analysis or try to get a sense of what had already been done and what had already been undertaken. So they kind of, not everybody, but a significant majority came in assuming that it was ground zero and that they would be the ones starting a process. And it was very much a welfare process. So it was a process that wasn't valuing the skills and the knowledge that people had and the and the lived experience of going through that first six or eight weeks of response. And so it was very disempowering because they just didn't see what people had already achieved. And the best help would have been to do kind of like an alongsidedness practice uh, rather than an imposition of a plan or a particular professional way of working. So that alongsidedness practice, you know, assist tired people doing good work would have been the best help by far at that time. But instead, the good work was was largely ignored. Was that, I mean, probably not by design, but maybe if, if it is as messy and chaotic as what you're describing, you know, not, not saying that in a derogatory sense, uh, but it's difficult for an outsider to actually judge what's happening i think so i think the and it depends on the kind of outsider that you get in so we had case managers so um kevin rudd was the prime minister and he made a statement that everybody who'd been impacted by the fires needed a case manager there wasn't enough case managers in victoria let alone in australia they were flown from western australia and western sydney Lucy and I had seven case managers over a relatively short period and we had to educate every single one of them. They had no idea what they were doing. Well, that wraps up the bonus extra bit of the podcast and Daryl and I actually, we talked about a whole lot of interesting things including trauma and how it brings up past traumas and amplifies the effect. And Daryl's someone that's influenced by a lot of the things that we talk about at Greening the Apocalypse, climate change, energy depletion, financial instabilities. And we talked about the implications of what that, maybe more slow burn type traumas, well, but probably more immediate climate change related weather ones as well, but what that might mean for the populace at large. And he also drew some fascinating lessons out of King Lake and the nature of having CFA and other institutions giving a false sense of security and indeed dealing with minor crises and how that actually means that the resilience of the larger system is actually compromised, that it loses the ability to deal with bigger crises when you're in this kind of coddled, protected, um, well, cot provided by... (laughs) Um, the government but anyway the recording didn't really do justice to to the wonderful conversation so what we're going to do is get daryl back to talk about those things and more but what a wonderful guest now back to the recording where jed and bushy were talking to tammy jonas and Triple R is where you are, 102.7 in Melbourne. Uh, Adam and Daryl have just stepped over to another studio to continue the podcast um, edition of that discussion on uh, crisis management and community resilience uh, post 
uh, bushfire and post other emergencies. I should just quickly touch on the idea, having spoken a bit about Black Saturday and its aftermath just now with Daryl Taylor, if that has brought up anything for you, which uh, I know it does for me a little, um, and you need to speak to somebody, Lifeline is available 24 hours a day on 131114. And there's someone on the other end of the phone that you can talk to if uh, anything has come up for you. On Greeting the Apocalypse, we frequently return to the, uh, the key source of life, which is food. And when we talk about food, we often talk about farmers, food regulations, food politics. And on the line, direct from her, uh, her uh, regulation bunker up in central Victoria, one of our favourite guests and someone we'd love to chat to uh, in this segment called The Regulation Diaries, Tammy Jonas. How are you, Tammy? Uh, so well, and I've got hot news for you guys tonight. Awesome, awesome. So um, you have just been in with a council meeting. I've got up in front of me one of your recent regulation, regulation diary posts uh, from your podcast, Planning for Industrial Intensive Animal Agriculture, the Regulation Diaries Part 7. Um, so we might quickly go to, go to that and just give us the current state of play that you've been up against and another small-scale... Um, poultry and pig producers uh, around Victoria? Yeah, so I'll do my briefest uh, explanation of what's been going on. In short, you know, we have planning provisions uh, for residential or farming or industrial zones, and they're all there to enable certain activities and to protect environment and amenity uh, as they do so. So the farming zone is clearly for farming. In the old planning provisions, the uh, small-scale pig and poultry growers didn't really exist when they wrote those, you know, 20, 30 years ago. And so the provisions didn't account for us. But two years ago, a case came up against the pig farmer Joanne Stritch from Happy Valley Free Range in the uh, Ranges, where a, um, somebody moved in next door to her with horses, didn't like pigs, complained. And they went to the old provisions and they found that she was defined as intensive because in the Victorian planning provisions, that is defined as importing the majority of your feed, which, of course, pigs and poultry, that's pretty standard. Um, they're not ruminants. They can't just graze, although they do also graze. And as a result of that, suddenly small-scale farmers across the state found themselves being called intensive, much to our dismay, as you can imagine. The state government at the same time was dealing with some stuff with black mullers, the wagyu farmer who was being called a feedlot. So they triggered a review. The review found that farms like ours, small-scale pig and poultry farms that are entirely on, on grass, on pasture, should not be required to have a permit and should not be called intensive. Um, we thought, that's great. They had the independent committee submitted the report to the government, and nearly two years later, the government has now responded, a year and a half later, the government has now responded, and what they've come out with is so different from what was recommended, we are completely gobsmacked, because they want to, rather than rectifying this accidental treating us as though we have pigs and poultry in shapes, they are codifying it in the proposed provisions. And we would indeed just be treated under the scheme exactly like our industrial counterparts. Indeed. So that's the battle we're in. That's the battle you're in. So, and, and so the independent committee, that they, you say here, they had demonstrably understood how necessary it is to apply the same controls to low-risk pasture systems as to large-scale intensive sheds, but the, the report disappeared. The report disappeared behind government doors for a couple of years. Now, you have a lot of allies uh, in the world, Tammy. You've also got a few opponents, and it would appear that um, the people that had the ear of government while that report was being written were that big ag lobby. Uh, in particular, uh, Australia Pork Limited, Victorian Farmers Federation and Meat and Livestock Australia, they've been kind of given carte blanche to write this draft provision, haven't they? Uh, it looks like it. I mean, the entire thing looks as though Australia Pork Limited wrote it. Um, it's it's perfect for them because they actually got rid of calling them intensive as well as us <laughs> and require us to jump through the same hoop. It's extraordinary. You know, it's a masterstroke if you're them. And, and yeah, and we're, we're horrified that the government was so heavily influenced and so, well, as we see it, you know, sort of... Um, uh, well, egregious against all of us who want properly raised animals and, and regenerative farms. Mm. There's a quote here that I take great exception to uh, where... I'm not going to name names at the risk of um, 
you know, getting big ag come directly after me or the station, but uh, someone deeply entrenched in the board of Victorian Meat Regulator Prime Safe, uh, formerly involved in the board of uh, Meat Regulator Prime Safe and um, currently heavily involved in the VFF. He's quoted as saying the farmers' markets are the Achilles heel of the Victorian food industry and that the reputational risk to our export markets is massive. Um, he sounds friendly. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, he's um, he's super friendly to us small guys, obviously. You know, it's like he's single-handedly trying to destroy small farming and farmers' markets, which, in my experience, if you ask the public, which they want, do they want export grain and cattle and giant feedlots from the Western District, or do they want pasta, pigs, and poultry and to buy it directly from their farmer, who they know, like us? Mm. Pretty sure the public's on our side, not that guy's side. No, that's right. Um, yeah, I just that stuck out. That stuck out to me and filled me with uh, some fairly heavy rage. Now you've just been out to a meeting this evening before going to air. What have you got? You got some hot news? I have hot off the press. Like actually, literally the first place here. I'm standing with bubbles in my hand, celebrating because I've just been at the Hepburnshire Council meeting for the month. And we made a presentation to them asking them to support small-scale producers and our aim to be treated the same as other grazing systems and not required to have a permit in the farming zone. And the council has voted unanimously to put in a submission to the Victorian state government proposing that we be treated the same as other grazing operations. It's a giant win for us. The first council to lead the way. Well done, Heather. <laughs> yeah. That is fantastic news. Um, now, look, there's, there was a few things. I was just looking through this article, and um, there was a recent newsletter where the Victorian Farmers Federation asserted that they, quote, do not support the planning permit exemption for some piggeries and poultry farms for a number of reasons. Often people start small and grow over time. Will the person who starts with 150 hens know how to get a planning permit when they have a thousand hens now tammy i know that you apply with your system of farming and with direct sales through community supported agriculture programs what's called a zero growth model for farming um similar to um one that i I suspect you've modeled off joel salatin and his practice at polyface farm in slope virginia there um is it reasonable to say that a lot of the small producers that you're working with and um and getting in the trenches uh, for whatever battle may ensure also follow that zero growth model and therefore this kind of you know suspicion doesn't really apply yeah i think well, i think there are two things here a lot of us are in that no growth mindset we're on small holdings we're not looking to overburden our land our whole our whole effort is to regenerate landscapes and so you cannot grow beyond the ecological umbilical as joel would say of your land so i think there's definitely the no growth mindset which makes that claim a little bit spurious but the other one is it's coming from guys who are massive growth proponents yeah. to suggest that <laughs> the, the, <laughs> to suggest that there's a problem if someone changes their mind and wants to actually grow which I'm, you know, I'm not a fan of but some people do want to and if they do, they'll just go through the same process as anyone else who wants yeah, to grow. You know, just, is it appropriate to the land? What are the rules? It's mm. insulting, isn't it? I mean, you know, if, it's a nonsense. If you chose to uh, grow your business, then like any business that grows, you get to a certain point and you have to do certain things. And, I mean, it almost implies that if you're a small farmer, you, you're too stupid to do anything else. It's just... It's, mm. it, yeah, and by the way, when they do that about a thousand chickens, that particular example he gives, um, a thousand chickens on pasture is not that many chickens. I'm just here, like, just quietly a little tip off. A thousand chickens yeah. doesn't take up. But, you know, like, like you'd be hard pressed to know there were a thousand of them out there. Mm. Um, it's not like their sheds where they might have literally a million in the shed. Indeed. It, so. Um, so no longer, no longer does any risk to environment or amenity appear to be any kind of a key consideration. So intensive producers have they've lobbied successfully with government. Um, they've created very prohibitive and expensive permit application requirements and a structure that's fairly much like an obstacle course for you guys. Um, yeah. So. I mean, what's the current battle? I know that there's a there's a petition online, and how's that going? Yep. Yeah, the petition's going well. When I last looked, we had nearly 10,000 on the change.org petition. I'd like to see that be 100,000 by the end of the month when public consultation closes on the 14th of November. 
But we've also started a paper petition because, of course, the online ones can't be submitted to Parliament mm. under very strict rules. So um, the, we've started a paper one that has the legislative authority to be tabled to Parliament. And we're, we're carrying that around with us. And uh, it's going to be at farmers markets. It's going to be at cafes, you know, all over the place. Um, what we need are thousands of signatures on that as well. Those are just two parts of the strategy. There's, um, we want people on social media showing examples of pasture, teeth and poultry, hashtagging it, this is not intensive, this is farming, regenerative ag. Um, we also have, pe- we want people writing to their local members. We want them writing to Minister for Agriculture, Jala Pulford, and Minister for Planning, Richard Wynne. Um, we're writing, perhaps, uh, unnecessarily to Barnaby Choice, <laughs> just for, you know, shits and giggles. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and yeah, I mean, any any sort of action letting letting the ministers know though that they're just completely out of step with public opinion on this, and and out of step with genuinely protecting environment and amenity. Uh, that's what we need. We need we need numbers showing them how wrong they are. Hey Tammy, have you got any other councils that you're lobbying where people might be able to uh, help out? With their local uh, yeah, councils, yeah, absolutely. So we've got two very, um, we've got two more mayors who are quite sympathetic in Campaspe Shire and Strathbogie Shire, and we're really hoping that they come in behind next. Um, I suspect we should be hitting some urban councils because, you know, those are the easiest who want to access food like we produce. And, and I think they'd be more likely to be sympathetic as well. I really think most councils, once they see what happened has voted, would probably support this, given that they have a lot of smallholders in their, in their districts. And they don't want to see us go under. And they, frankly, don't want to check out whether our farms have five pigs or 500 pigs. You know, like, it's a huge task to try and do what the state government is suggesting they should. Indeed it is. Um, we'll get ready to sign off, Tammy. It's funny, I keep hearing this thing uh, in the, the news about an energy crisis. You seem to have boundless energy. Uh, perhaps uh, in the coming summer peak when everyone switches on their air conditioning, we need to somehow uh, plug into Jonai Farm and your incredible <laughs> energy and enthusiasm. I came up with a song to play uh, as we sign off tonight, Tammy. It's by the mighty L7 from uh, the United States, uh, and it might apply to a few of the people you're up against. This song's called Shit List. <laughs> you guys are the best. All right. Thanks very much, Tammy, for making the time. We'll speak to you soon. <laughs> All right. See ya. Bye. Yes, Triple R is where you are. Uh, we have had a couple of guests tonight. Daryl Taylor's still with us, and uh, we also just spoke to Tammy Jonas. We'll give you a few details on the petition that is running for the Australian Food Sovereignty Alliance in a minute. But, uh, Adam, uh, Daryl's a pretty stellar guest. He surely is. Um, we might have to get you back at some stage as well, Daryl, because your, your rebuilding adventures have been quite a thing, haven't they? Yeah, there's been some fun and games. I mean, I'm not the only one that's <coughs> had challenges along the way. Many people have, but... But you've taken a fairly unique approach, have you not? I have. I think I, there was just a huge opportunity. Like, I was passionate about the community having a sustainable and resilient settlement, and there just there was this huge opportunity to do something different. Well, that didn't play out systemically, I took the opportunity to do it locally. Right. Yeah. We'll get you back sometime soon, we'll have a bit of a yak of that. Did, Adam, but there are some events coming up to do with your amazing new house, right? Which yeah, is we, an Earthship and yeah. Michael Reynolds, I, a.k.a. the Garbage Warrior, the documentary by the same name, American Fellow. You're touring him at the moment. We are. He's in Alice Springs at the moment. So yep. he was up in King Lake on the weekend in Coburg on Sunday night, packed packed houses everywhere he goes. So it's yeah. been great to have him over. And, right. yeah, we, it was really good to – because I had him on my property a couple of times um, in 2010, and yeah, it was good to have him back. We're Where can people find out about uh, yeah, so there's your an house? Agari Earth Builders mm-hmm. um, on their Facebook or website yep. page is where the workshops are listed, yep. and there's an Earthship King Lake Facebook page as well. Very good. Uh, on the topic of such uh, awesome pages, um, if you go to change.org, there is the Jala Pulford Free Range Farming is Not Intensive Farming petition currently clicking over 8,700 hits and signatures help secure the future of free range pig and poultry farming in Victoria. We'll see you next Tuesday. But until then, have all the fun. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.